listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. So this weekend, we're taking a one-weekend break from our normal series that we've been in since September in the Sermon on the Mount. We will be uh, finishing that series in two weeks, getting close to the end. And, uh, but, but for this weekend, we're going to take just one little final detour, and you'll see why we're doing this in, in just a few moments. I'm not going to preach very long today, but I've got to be honest, it seems like every time I say that, it ends up being just as long as it normally would have been. But I, don't, I, I think I'm going to hold myself to it. It's not going to be... It's not going to be a long sermon, but it's going to be a thoughtful, reflective sermon. And we're going to focus today on, on the ascension of Christ. This painting you're looking at uh, was painted by Gustav Doré about, I don't know, 160, 170 years ago. Beautiful painting that depicts the ascension of Christ. And the title of the sermon this weekend is President of Presidents. You'll see why in, in just a few moments. But let's look at our passage today, Luke chapter 24. Verses 50 53. When Jesus had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Typically, whenever the story gets told about Jesus' life here on earth, and we condense it to its most basic form, you know, the, the absolute most essential events in his life, you know, always people start with his birth, his incarnation, Christmas. And then, I, I think, unfortunately, we jump over his entire life to the events of his death, the crucifixion, Good Friday, And then, of course, we cannot forget what happens on the third day when he's physically resurrected from the grave. So condensed to its most basic form, this is how the Jesus story gets commonly told. It's birth, death, resurrection. Or we might just say it like this, Christmas, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. But this is not the end of the story. Because 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he was ascended to the right hand of the Father. He ascended to heaven. In fact, this week, in just a few days, on Thursday, May 26th, there is a special holiday, holy day, on the Christian calendar that has been observed annually for hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, there's, there's even evidence that perhaps it goes back to the very beginning of the Christian movement. But we call it Ascension Day, commemorating Jesus' ascension to heaven. It's, it marks the 40th day after Easter Sunday. But for whatever reason, I think for most of the broader evangelical community, Ascension Day doesn't seem to get a whole lot of press. 
In fact, it kind of just comes and goes without a lot of people really even knowing about it or recognizing it. I mean, how many of you have asked off for work this Thursday for Ascension Day? I mean, it would be unthinkable about these other holidays, you know? I mean, Christmas Day, Easter Sunday, maybe even Good Friday for a lot of us. I mean, it would be unthinkable for these holy days to come and go without us really taking time to reflect and observe this, these holidays properly. And rightfully so, we make such a big deal out of these holidays, and we should. But I think the fact that for the broader evangelical world, the fact that Ascension Day can come and go without a lot of us even knowing about it, let alone making time to reflect upon the Ascension, I think it's actually kind of telling. And it reveals, perhaps, that we don't really grasp the meaning, the implications of Christ's ascension. Now, first of all, the ascension of Jesus is not about Jesus flying off in outer space somewhere. I mean, for one thing, that's not how the relationship between heaven and earth actually works. You know, like, like zoom towards Pluto, take a left, go towards the Andromeda galaxy, and you'll run into heaven. That's not really how heaven and earth works. Heaven is not a distant place. Heaven is just simply a different dimension. It's, it's the realm where God dwells. All right? Remember at the, at the end of the book of Matthew, when Jesus is giving his great commission, our famous passage, I think it's absolutely essential for us to, to know it and, and maybe even have it memorized. Um, but at the very end, Matthew 28 you know, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I command you. And then the last part, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So which is it? Is he with us? Or is he somewhere beyond the boundaries of the Milky Way galaxy? Well, if we understand that heaven is simply a different dimension, it's not a different geographical location in the universe, it's simply a different dimension, then there's no conflict whatsoever. So the ascension of Christ is not about Jesus assuming a different ge geography. It's about Jesus assuming divine regency. Or I'll just say it like this. The ascension of Christ is about God elevating his son to the position of ruler of the world. Right here and right now. Which is exactly what God promised to his Messiah a thousand years earlier, way back in Psalm 2, um, there's this messianic passage, and I want us to look at it. Psalm 2, just, just, this, little, just this little bit, uh, latter part of verse 7 and 8. And here's, here's uh, the Messiah figure, as, as this would come to be understood. Here's the Messiah figure saying, The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. So 10 centuries later, when God ascends his son into the clouds physically, but to his right hand spiritually, this is a direct fulfillment of this passage in Psalm 2. God is elevating his son, giving him a scepter, as we might imagine, to rule the heavens and the earth right here and right now. Think of it this way. You know, we might speak of, you know, for countries that have like 
a monarchy still elsewhere in the world, we might speak of a prince ascending to the throne. Or in American culture, we might speak of a board member of a corporation being elevated to the position of chairman of the board. Or for a grade school student, we might speak of them at the end of the school year moving up a grade. So you see, the language of moving higher is present. Ascending, elevating, moving up. The language of moving up is, is present. But the point is not that they're physically moving higher. The point is that a promotion has taken place. And so watch this. When Jesus literally physically ascends to the clouds, to the heavens, this is a symbolic representation of the greater spiritual reality that the Father has promoted his Son to the oval office of the universe. And he is now ruling the heavens and earth right here and right now. So the ascension of Jesus is not about Jesus escaping the earth. It's about Jesus ruling the earth. And when you think about it, boy, that has really profound implications for how you and I do life right now, doesn't it? This is what Christians have confessed for 2,000 years. In fact, this ascension of Jesus to rule the world, this was the theme of the apostolic gospel. In other words, when you, when you read about the gospel as presented in the sermons and writings of Acts and the epistles of the New Testament, what these early Christian leaders were not saying, what they were not emphasizing was, hey everyone, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can go to heaven when you die. That's not what they were saying. Now is that true? Absolutely it's true. I don't want you to tar and feather me yet. Let me finish my sermon. I'm not taking that away from you. That's absolutely an essential part of our, our gospel, absolutely. But that's not the emphasis in the New Testament. And if you doubt me, just read the New Testament with that in mind. The gospel that the apostles preached, and how many of you think we ought to preach the gospel the way the, the apostles preached it? How many think that would be a good idea? Okay. Well, it sounds like this, and I want to show you this slide on the screen. And this is just me kind of taking common phrases and words in the New Testament and putting them together in one body of statement. This is the gospel that the apostles preached in Acts and in the epistles. It goes like this. God sent his son, Jesus, the Messiah, to be the savior of the world. But the rulers of this world rejected him and killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. Now Jesus has been promoted to God's right hand and has been made ruler of heaven and earth. Jesus is Lord. Because of this, everything must change. Rethink your life. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and begin to obey him. This is the gospel and salvation of the kingdom of God. But you see, this sounds maybe a little bit different than the way you're used to hearing it in evangelicalism in America which I think just reveals to us that we've got some recovery to do. Because this is what the apostles preached, not this privatized, personalized, 
post-mortem message about how to get to heaven when you die. That, that so-called gospel too easily accommodates the powers and principalities of this world. What do I mean by that? I mean that when we take the gospel of the New Testament and shrink it down and reduce it to just a simple formula about how to get to heaven when you die, then the ruling structures of this world, you know, if, if it helps you, think about maybe somebody like Vladimir Putin. The ruling structures of this world that are so often influenced by demonic powers and principalities working in concert with one another, they hear us talk like that and they just pat us on the head condescendingly and say, very good Christians, very well. You all just focus on getting people to heaven when they die. In the meantime, we'll take care of running the world. And that's exactly what's happening in Russia right now where the, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Archbishop Kirill, is, is basically becoming Putin's altar boy. It's a powerless gospel that has no effect on the world. It's, it's a cheap imitation of the gospel that conspires with the powers and principalities to push heaven and earth further apart. And that's exactly what the devil wants to do. He wants to push heaven and earth apart so that Jesus, you get heaven. Jesus, you just stay in heaven, rule in heaven. When you come back one day, then you can do your thing. But for now, just stay in heaven, rule over heaven. And in the meantime, we powers and principalities will get on with the business of ruling the world. Thank you very much. And that is a complete betrayal of what Jesus taught us to pray. How did he teach us to pray? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Your agenda, your government, your politics, your vision, may it come about here on earth as it is in heaven. See, we're doing the opposite. We're pulling heaven and earth together. We want to see God's realm become and include the, earth, the realm of the earth. We want to see heaven and earth fully aligned under the kingship of Christ so that God's vision for human life society more and more becomes a reality. And that's what you and I belong to. That's what we are to be participating in right now. I'm begging for an amen. All right. Okay. Don't be afraid to amen me. I'm not going to be intimidated. That's what we're called to be participating in right now so that when the powers and principalities say, no, 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 Christians, just, just focus on getting people to say a little prayer so they can go to heaven when they die. That's when we say, you don't know what you're talking about. Because the gospel is that Jesus is Lord of all right here and right now, and you're not. When, when the apostles were arrested by the Jewish Sanhedrin for preaching that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and they were being interrogated by the ruling authorities and questioned, here's what Peter says, and, and, and as a representative for the movement, here's what Peter says in defense. He says, God has exalted this Jesus and made him both prince and savior. Now that word prince, it, it can be translated from the Greek, it can be translated prince, leader, chief, something like that. But it's actually, it, it's interesting, it's the root word in the Latin for our English word president. So it actually might be helpful for you to put this in modern vernacular. And imagine as, as the apostles are being interrogated 
by the Jewish authorities and they're being threatened. Stop preaching that Jesus is Messiah. It might help you to imagine Peter just saying it the way we would say it in our world, where Peter just says, God has exalted Jesus and made him both president and savior. Not by democratic election, but by divine appointment by the Father. You know, one of the titles that we proclaim about Jesus, we call him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And, and this is true. It's, it's appropriate for us to speak of him this way. But the problem is, this is kind of archaic language. We don't really talk like that anymore. Like, when's the last time in everyday life you referred to somebody as a Lord or a King? Like, never, right? So, so it's, it's, we don't speak of kings and lords, but we do speak of presidents and prime ministers. So it actually might be helpful for you to just translate it into today's world and to speak of Jesus being president of presidents, prime minister of prime ministers. He is the head of heads of state. I know you're not used to talking like that, but just know this, what I'm giving you this morning, this is not some weird, far-out doctrine from way out in left field. No, this is solid, right-down-the-pike Orthodox Christianity. I want to show you uh, Paul's opening sentence to the Christians in Rome. Book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 1. I, want you to, I just want you to see what Paul's doing here. That is, actually, we don't think of it this way. It's quite subversive when you see the context. Where do these Christians live? Say it louder and confidently. I'm not going to. Rome. Who else lives in Rome? Mm. <laughs> Caesar. Oh, it's under the piano. Okay. So, so with that in mind, look at, what, look at what Paul says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the the Son of God in power. I wish I would just take this passage and preach a whole sermon on it because there's a lot, of, a lot of stuff here. Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Lord, as Son of God, Lord was, was the primary imperial title for Caesar. And what Paul's saying is, no, 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 Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. You see, this is subversive stuff. Verse 5, through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience. Everybody say obedience. We're going to come back to that at the end. Obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also are among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from, say it with me, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this, by the way, in the Greek is one sentence. Just like one long run-on sentence. But in this opening sentence of this letter that's written to the gathered Christians in Rome, the capital of the civilized world, which also happens to be the place where a Roman emperor resides named Caesar Nero, whose primary imperial title is Kyrios, meaning Lord. 
Paul is saying twice in this opening sentence, it's not Kyrios Kaiser Nero, it's Kyrios Christos Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is telling the band to strike up Hail to the Chief for Jesus. <laughs> Paul better be careful. He's going to get himself killed. Anybody know his story? How did Paul meet his demise? How did he die? He's beheaded. He was beheaded. Who ordered it? Nero. Now, don't answer too quickly on this one. Why did Nero execute Paul? What, was, it, was it because Paul was going around telling people how to get to heaven when they die? No, because Nero wouldn't care about that. Like, talk about heaven all you want to. Go for it. Knock yourself out. Just stop talking about what's happening right now in this world that I rule. Jesus can rule heaven all he wants. But, but Paul was going around telling people, the world has a new emperor, and it ain't Nero, it's Jesus. And the emperor named Nero didn't like it, so we had him killed. And yet today, we name our kids Peter and Paul, we name our dogs Nero. <clears throat> so what, I, what I'm wanting you to see and what I'm hoping you're seeing is that the gospel was and is a radical announcement. This is why so many of our apostolic fathers were put to death and, and so, many, so many other nameless men, women, and children were put to death. Because they were making a radical announcement that has, it's, 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 you, you cannot overestimate the effects and implications it has for the way we live together as, as a society. They were announcing the world has a new emperor, and it's not Nero, it's not Caesar, it's Jesus Christ, and they were put to death for that claim. And this becomes the great drama of the first three centuries. The first 300 years of Christian history, this is the drama. It's, it's the Jesus way versus the Caesar way. And they are not the same thing. And they will repeatedly collide over and over again because they're antithetical to one another. What is the Caesar way? It's four things. The Caesar way is the way of power, the way of violence, the way of greed, and the way of pride all fueled by lust, power, violence, greed, and pride. These are the basic assumptions that fuel empire from Rome all the way to Washington, D.C. today. And the Jesus way is a direct challenge to this. Instead of power over others, the Jesus way teaches coming under others and serving them. Instead of violence to get our way, the Jesus way teaches turning the other cheek, absorbing hostility, violence, and hatred, and recycling it into radical forgiveness. Instead of greed as our primary motivating, motivating ethic through human life, the Jesus, teaches the Jesus way teaches the others-oriented way of compassion, self-sacrificial love. And instead of pride as a primary ethic for human life, the Jesus way teaches humility. And watch this, because this is why I'm doing this message this weekend. These four virtues, 
meekness, mercy, love, humility. This is exactly what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Think with me for a moment. Just reflect. What does the ascension of Christ have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Well, if we see the ascension of Jesus as just simply Jesus going on vacation, telling us, hey, I'm going to go off to heaven for a good while, and then I'll come back later and check on you guys, then we can dismiss the Sermon on the Mount as, you know, maybe that's something we'll try later on when Jesus comes back, but, but right now it's just completely impractical to live this way. And by the way, I've read enough commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount to know this is exactly what so many scholars and theologians have said about the sermon for the last few hundred years. They may not use cute little quips like going on vacation or whatnot, but what they say is basically, you know what, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus giving us this impossible, idealistic ethic for human life and... uh, you know, we live in the real world, and we all know we just, it's, you just can't live that way. But maybe when Jesus comes back, we will. But for, for now, we can't. And that's because they've totally misunderstood the meaning of the ascension of Jesus. They essentially see the ascension of Jesus as Jesus going away. Jesus is escaping the earth rather than ascending to rule the earth. But once again, if you and I can learn to see the ascension of Christ for what it is, God the Father elevating his son to the oval office of the universe, ruling heaven and earth right now. Then as Paul says in his opening sentence of this letter, we who have pledged ourselves to Jesus must exemplify our faith through obedience. And we say to ourselves, we say to the world around us, we say, you know what? We confess that this crucified man was vindicated because God raised him from the dead and ascended him to his right hand of power. Therefore, watch what we're going to do. We're actually going to take his teachings. We're going to take his Sermon on the Mount, and we're actually going to live it out by the power of the Holy Spirit. In two weeks, we're going to get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and and you'll see a a very provocative passage. I don't think that we've given enough time and reflection. There's actually two of them. There's two of them that that we have to spend more time reflecting on in the evangelical community. The first one is when Jesus says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to participate in the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who what? Does the will. Does the will does the will. And then at the very end, the last thing he does is he gives this parable about a man who builds his house on the rock and a man who builds his house on sand. And a storm comes and and it wipes out the house that's built on sand. And yet the the house that's on the rock is completely intact. And what does Jesus say? The one who takes these words of mine, what words? The Sermon on the Mount. The one who takes these words of mine and puts them into practice is the one who's built his house on the rock. And when the, storms, when the storm comes, they they're not going anywhere. But the one who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is the one who's built their house on the sand. So we who confess, as we did at the very beginning of this sermon, we have come to confess that Jesus is Lord. He's not Lord of 
of the heavens somewhere outside of the Milky Way galaxy? I mean, not that he's not that, but it's much more than that. He's not Lord to come. He's not Lord elect. He's Lord of all, right here and right now. And this is why we want the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us into men and women who are capable of living out his vision for what human life and society needs to look like right here and right now. And when we do so, that's when we become the salt of the earth and the light of the world, living out a Christianity that actually has the capacity to turn the world inside out and upside down. Amen. That's enough for today. Why don't you bow your heads? Close your eyes. And I want you to just, actually, we'll just take a moment of just silence. And I want you to allow God, just in your own thoughts, allow God to explore the implications of this sermon for your life right here and right now. For example, I want you to right now be exploring and asking King Jesus, President Jesus, ask him, what is your agenda and your vision for my marriage, for my thought patterns, for my financial habits, for my relationships with people at my workplace, or my neighbors across the street? What's your vision for how I, as your follower, should relate to those of different cultures, different ethnicities, different backgrounds? Lord, show us, God, that how we relate to one another is a gospel issue. Let me give you just 60 seconds, give some time and space for the Holy Spirit to speak to you. just on your mind or your heart just in your own way right now just surrender it to God say God my intention and my desire right now is to take this element of my life and I want to bring it in alignment with your vision I confess that you are my Lord you're the master of my life and I want to participate in what you're doing the kingdom of God that's already present in our midst, right under our face. I just pray, God, that we would properly perceive your vision. Lord, I pray that you would expose the falsehoods, the counterfeit visions, 
that don't represent your heart. Help us to see with spiritual eyes what you're doing all around us. Give us more of your heart. May we share more in your burdens, more in your passions. May we be passionate about what you're passionate about. May we release passion from those things that maybe you're not all that passionate about, it turns out. We have one life. Lord, may we spend ourselves for your kingdom and serve the reigning king of the universe who we confess to be Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you're patient with us, you're merciful, you're good, you're committed, you're faithful to your vision. Continue to draw us near to your heart as we keep our eyes fixed upon you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.